attitudes. They've really been a recurring theme as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Someone once said that attitude changes everything. And we've actually seen that. And I believe it. We made it a point to notice the admonition of Jesus that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 20. And that in the six triads that followed, the greater righteousness had to do with a deep inward righteousness of the heart. Not going through the motions, not even going through the motions uh, to be seen. Because as we moved into chapter 6, we were given a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them. Previously in the sermon, righteousness related to kindness, to purity, to honesty, and to love. But as chapter 6 begins, the focus is on some of the prescribed practices. And the three that Jesus chose to emphasize were our giving, our praying, and our fasting. And the emphasis moves away from what we might think of as the moral direction. Interestingly, though the same Greek word for righteousness is used, the change of the emphasis is noted by our translators because, for example, the Revised Standard Version renders the sentence, beware of practicing your piety before men. Same Greek word, but they change it from righteousness to piety. And the New English Bible has, be careful not to make a show of your religion before men. For example, there is absolutely nothing wrong with giving to the poor. In fact, many times, even though people say, oh, don't do that, don't do that, I've stopped and said to people in the, the underpasses in Chicago, if you want to get up and walk right up there to that restaurant with me, I'll buy you some food. I won't just hand them cash, but I'll say, walk with me up to there and I'll buy you a meal. Sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. Nothing wrong with giving to the poor. In Jesus' time, it was in fact spoken of as the religious practice of almsgiving. And it was not the practice of giving that Jesus addressed, but the attitudes of the givers. And so as we come to chapter 7, the context is still that of attitudes. And the first sentence should be a clue. I'm sure you have heard it quoted many times. Often when someone's not wanting to be confronted with the rightness or the wrongness of their lifestyle uh, and or their choices. I mean, you can, you, right now I'm sure you can hear them saying, well the Bible says judge not that you be not judged. But you're reasonable people. Does it make any sense for Jesus to be saying we're not to make any judgments? Think about it for one second. 
Haven't we already been given the task by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to make sure, to discern, to judge whether our righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees? You see, we are to be different from both Pharisees and pagans, from the religious and the irreligious, from the church and the world. That Christians are not to conform to the world is a familiar concept of the New Testament. It's not so well known that Jesus also saw and foresaw the worldliness of the church itself and called his followers not to conform to nominal practices that are going on by some church religion related people. But rather to be a truly Christian community. The essential difference in religion as in morality is that authentic Christian righteousness is not an external manifestation only. Now hear me on that. Because it is an external manifestation. But it's not that only. It's also one of the secret things of the heart. Let me give you three words to help you flesh this out a bit. There is a proper discernment that we are to manifest. We're not to be condoning. So when the world says, why, can't we all just agree? I mean, it's just an alternate lifestyle and on and on and on. We're not to be condoning. In fact, Jesus says that we're to let our lights so shine so that people can see our good works as opposed to bad works. And what I hope to develop today is that we're also not to condemn. We're not to condone. We're not to condemn. That is the judging that we're not to do. We shouldn't be condoning what is wrong, nor should we be condemning the wrongdoer. However, over and over in Scripture, we are called upon to confront that which is wrong. Somehow, and I know this is not at all easy, we are called to love the sinner even though we hate the sin. Now, I, I promise you it was only a fleeting second. And if I had wanted to be cute, I could have joined those that I actually saw, not one, not two, but I saw three different hits for sermons on this passage titled, Logs, Dogs, and Hogs. <laughs> and I am one who thinks Jesus had a sense of humor. And so Jesus will speak of logs in our eye and giving dogs what is holy and throwing our precious pearls before hogs. The question for us to consider though is how do we prevent inappropriate judgment without lacking genuine discernment? The passage will begin emphatically stating, make 
Do not judge. And it is in fact a command. Jesus uses the imperative tense. And He also uses repetition. So let's look at God's Word together. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, oh, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. May God bless our reading of His Word. I think the key, the key as we start digging in is right there in verse 5. It gives us the goal for which we should strive. We're called to remove that log. And can you imagine the kids? Can you imagine the kids standing around when Jesus is talking and He says, Wow! That person has a speck of sawdust and you've got this great big plank in your eye and you're trying to worry about that speck. And they're probably sitting back there going, Hi, Jesus, He's a funny man. But the point is, He says, when we get the log out of our own eye, then you will see clearly. To do what? To ignore the one who has the speck in the eye? No. You'll cl see clearly then to go ahead and help get that speck out of the brother's eye. Now let me share with you a four-point outline that was actually developed by my friend Chuck Sackett. And he said... Please use what you can and preach with vigor and passion. That was his notes. And so I'm just using his outline and don't blame him for the stuff other than the four points of the outline. That's all he created. But when we see clearly, when we see clearly, when we've gotten the logs out of our own eyes, when, when we've done the work, the meditation, the reading of God's Word, the reflection, the confessing of our sins to somebody that we can know will hold that in confidence and we can pray for one another. When we've done all the hard work, when we can see clearly, then we will develop an accurate view of God. Let me restate that a bit. Judgment in terms of condemnation belongs to God, not us. First of all, Let's consider a passage that's already been brought up by Rich. You didn't know I was going here. Already brought up by Rich. And, and it's one we're very familiar with. In fact, if you go to ball games, you'll see it on a sign. At least. Not the words, but at least you'll see John 3.16. Many of us have memorized it. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I know, 
King James Version. But that's how I memorized it when I was little. But how many of us also memorized verse 17? For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Guess what? Condemn, crino, is exactly the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when He says, Judge not. Don't go around and crino. Jesus wasn't even supposed to go around and crino, and He didn't. Remember the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery? Brought to Him? It was obviously a setup because the man wasn't there. If you catch a woman in the act, you also caught the man in the act. But where's the man? They didn't bring it. Jesus looks around and he says, Let the one among you who has not sinned cast the first stone. Now actually, whoever it was that caught them in the act... Under Old Testament prescriptions, that was to be the person when they did the stoning that threw the first stone. And then it says, Jesus stooped down and he doodled. He did something graphic in the dirt. We don't know if it was drew pictures or wrote words. The Greek word isn't that specific. I sometimes, with my imagination, think that maybe he drew a little creek with a tree that was familiar and somebody standing looking said, Oh, he knows about that. But it says the people left, and you know how they left? From the oldest to the youngest. I wish, I wish I'd have known when I was 18 years old what I now know now. I wish I'd have known when I was 18 years old what I knew when I was 25. I walked away from a full-ride scholarship to, to West Point Military Academy. And man, it... At 25, I realized if I had a degree that said West Point, I'd have been able to do all kinds of crazy things that not having that degree restricts. The oldest left first. And when all of them were gone, what did Jesus say to the girl? Where are those who condemn you? Crino. Neither do I condemn you. But did he condone her behavior? His next words are, Go and sin no more. He didn't say, oh, well, you know, they just don't understand. You're living an alternate lifestyle, and that's how things are, and that's okay. No. He said, go and sin no more.
Same thing happened with the woman at the well. She was shocked at how he was accepting of her. He didn't condemn her. But he said, um, why don't you go get your husband? Bring him here. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You've had five and the man you're living with right now isn't your husband. He confronted her, but yet he didn't condemn her. She never felt like she was being pushed away. Biblically speaking, judging is different from practicing discerning. In Mark 4, Jesus is teaching by means of parables. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And the very next teaching is, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. That isn't about receiving blessings. As I've heard TV evangelists go off on. It's about if you listen properly, you'll gain even more wisdom than what the words are that you're hearing. And Mark's use of that proverb is a little bit more specialized than the general concept of measure for measure judgment. It serves here to encourage careful hearing. You see, what you get out of things depends on what you put in little boy was standing at the back of the church and his dad went out grumbling and he said, well, I didn't get much out of that. And the little boy looked up and said, well, didn't you get at least that nickel's worth you put in the offering? We get out of something what we put in. Your treasure determines where your heart is. And when you start judging, and in terms of how we're going to be judged by God, we need to be willing to be judged by the same standards that we place upon others. It doesn't say that we're not to make discernment. We're just to be willing to live up to that same thing. But my experience, and maybe yours as well, Thieves get the most disturbed when they're stolen from. The unfaithful are the most suspicious and jealous. Liars absolutely hate to be lied to. You see, we're not willing to be judged by the same standard we use to judge others. And that's why God is the only one qualified in a final sense to judge because He is worthy. He judges by the standard of holiness because He is holy. And so, if we develop an accurate view of God, then we understand why. We're to place ourselves under the judgment of this book. It's not whether or not this book is relevant. It's whether or not I've made myself relevant to what it says. Now, when we see clearly, then we'll develop a healthy view of others. Now, here's the problem. 
Judgment tempts us to feel superior. We need to continually remind ourselves that others, those that aren't like us, are not inferior because they do or see things different than we do. Like the Pharisee who beat his chest and proudly said, I thank God that I'm not a sinner like those people. There are areas in which we are allowed freedom of thought and freedom of application. Not all biblical teaching involves a thus saith the Lord statement. Paul, in the following matter, this is not from the Lord, I don't have a directive from the Lord, but my opinion basically he's saying, There are things in the Bible that are not thou shalt not. And that's why we as a part of the Christian churches and churches of Christ have gone by the saying in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love. We also, by the way, had a saying that referred to our choice in name. The Christian church or the church of Christ. And that saying was, and I've got a book that uh, James DeForest Murch wrote and published, and he titled it, uh, Only Christians, or Christians Only. Christians Only. It's a history of the Restoration Movement. But that motto was, we're not the only Christians, but Christians only. See, But I have known, and you probably have as well, I have known Christian church ministers who would never fellowship with the ministerial association. Hannah, I was the only Christian church minister in the Watsika area that was going to the ministers' meetings. Because we have the tendency to believe, well, if you don't think just like I do, you're obviously lost. You're not a part of it. In reality, we're all sinners. Not just them, not just the others. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we come to discernment as fellow pilgrims. Our desire should be to see all God's children in relation to Him. And proper discernment helps us then to reach out and help them. So not only must we see God and man correctly, we also need to develop an honest view of ourselves. Judging requires that I first look at myself very carefully. There is not only the passage that I just quoted, but the Bible also said there is none righteous. No, not one. Therefore, I must begin by willing to see, be willing to see myself as, as God sees me. There are no little or big sins. I, I know that the Catholic Church has identified seven so-called mortal sins. But I don't see that differentiation in the Scriptures. John says that if you 
don't show and, and you're not obedient and you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And that in and of itself separates us from God. Our tendency is to triage sin. Kind of like we do illness at an ER. And I don't know if you remember this. Might not even have been there that Sunday. But I was preaching through a series of Rome, on Romans at Martinson. And I came to the passage dealing with homosexuality. And you do remember the fact that at that time I was 350 pounds. Figure. I stepped out from the pulpit and I said, somehow we need to understand this teaching, know that homosexuality is not an acceptable alternate lifestyle. It's a sin. And I said, but so is my obesity. My mother, because of her upbringing, my mother could not deal with anybody who had serious alcohol problems. My grandfather was an alcoholic and he was a mean alcoholic. So bad that when he came up the back stairs from downtown, which was a hill, the dog, if he was sober, would be at the end of the chain to greet him. If he was drunk, the dog would be in the doghouse to avoid him. And so if, if my mother was here and you came in and sat down and said, you know, you might want to know this, but I, I did kill somebody one time, but I did my time, I did my 20 years, and while I was in pres prison, I met the Lord and accepted Him, and my life has changed. She'd sit right there and carry on a conversation with you. But if you said, I'm a recovering alcoholic, haven't had a drink for 12 years, she would probably get up, go to the bathroom, and when she came back, she'd find somewhere else to sit. We triage sins. There's no such thing as a little white lie. All dishonesty, all misleading statements, all intentionally tainting of a picture is a lie that John says separates us from God. And I am not in myself capable of making right judgments in terms of condemnation and, and eternal salvation. I have people come to me all the time they'll say, well, what about my Uncle Joe? Uncle Joe this, 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 this. And I say, you know, I'm so thankful that I'm not the judge. Jesus is. However, for the sake of the kingdom, I must be willing to make discerning decisions. I'm not to condone any behavior or lifestyle that contradicts God's word. At the same time, it's not my position to condemn, but it is only by means of the grace of God that I'm even worthy to come into the presence of God. And an accurate view of God 
A healthy view of others and an honest view of myself are the dimensions necessary to practice appropriate discernment. However, we also need to develop the right balance within ourselves. There is more to judging than meets our eye. We're called to be humble. That should be our number one concern as we approach others. We cannot have a feeling or a belief that we are somehow better than them. We're to be helpful. If what you're about to say or do isn't going to be positive and encouraging and helpful, then, then don't do it. There might be people who, due to the way that they were raised, are either not aware of what the Bible says, or have been raised to see things from a totally different perspective. My son Eric was sharing with me that, that he uh, was talking about Sunday and said to the person, well, you know, I'm going to try to find a church down in that area. And the person said, you're traveling and you're going to worry about going to church? And Eric said, I realized very quickly in that belief second, I was reminded of how you would say many times, we grow up with blicks on. And he said, the blick that I always had on was that on Sunday morning, unless you're dying or dead or in the hospital, you get yourself to church to worship God. And the best that we can do is to widen those blicks. We can never get rid of them. The way I was raised will always be a part of why I was raised. When I went to Southern Seminary, I got the first taste from somebody who was sincere about why they believed that once you're saved, always you're always saved. Now, we sat down and had some talks and, and discussions, and, and the end result was, I don't know that they changed, but they at least understood from me and my beliefs why I believe the Bible, especially the book of Hebrews, said to be careful because we can fall away. We're to be helpful. Because they might not even be aware of those blicks that they're wearing. A worldview is not something we look at. It's something we look through to interpret the world. And that, that's why we're called to be discerning. To try to think outside the box. To carefully study God's Word and ask for the Spirit's guidance. Especially in interpreting difficult passages. And to interpret the difficult passages by means of the ones that are easy to understand. Don't try to change the easy ones because of your understanding of a difficult one. And that brings us to the challenge that we face. First of all, we need to learn that our unwillingness to judge, to discern, means that some people will never be held accountable. They'll never know that what they are doing is wrong in the eyes of God. I'm going to use another personal example, and, and I know she won't mind, even though she's not here. My wife grew up in a home, in a community, in an environment where if you didn't say cuss words, it's probably because you weren't talking. And when we first got together and we were eating a meal one time, 
there was a little pause and I said, you know, Jesse, when my mom and dad get back, if you use some of those words, my dad will probably give you a raised eyebrow. But I said, we'll be picking my mom up off the floor. And from that meal to this day, 20, almost 27 years, I have never heard her say another cuss word. It was a perspective that she had been raised up on. She didn't realize that it wasn't right. There was, there was so a different way. And there is a scriptural pattern that Jesus gave us in Matthew 18. If someone has sinned against us or offended us scripturally, this isn't about hurt feelings, though it might also work there, we are instructed to go to that offending person one-on-one, not cast it out onto the gossip lines, and if gently reminders and going to the person one-on-one doesn't work, we're not to give up. We're to return and take a witness. And then if that still doesn't work, we are to take it before the church. And, and that's not easy. In fact, it's difficult to do as well as to be a part of. Secondly, our failure to discern means that the gospel, the good news, that there is a better way to live, a way that leads to life and not destruction, is being, held from, being withheld from others. So we need to learn to judge, to discern, to make decisions wisely. Let's pray. Father God, sometimes your your word isn't isn't easy. I I can only imagine Ezekiel and the apostle John when you gave the scroll and said, "Eat this." I know those were metaphors, but sometimes it's hard to digest what your word says and apply it and realize that those tough statements actually lead to a better way to live. And so help us in the days ahead to not just quit discerning, by all means not to condone that which is wrong, clearly wrong from what the Bible says, but to confront speaking the truth in love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.